Welcome to Leaders in Travel Beyond the Business Card. I'm Scott Cleaver, and in the coming weeks and months, we'll hear from leaders across the travel corporation who we think have a great story to tell. We'll dive deep into their formative years, what drew them to travel, what makes them tick, and how they get their inspiration. Plus, because we send so many thousands of guests to all parts of the world each year on journeys of exploration and joy, we will ask our leaders about their travel lives, where they've been, what they've seen, and where to next. Today's guest is, in my humble opinion, a bit of an enigma. He emanates positivity, fun and humour, yet the professional standards he demands of himself and his team are exacting and sky high. But who is the real Jonathan Raggett? Hey, Scotty. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you and uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, So the real Jonathan Raggett is a man that uh, has been a hotelier now for 40 years. I uh, went to school, I got some reasonable qualifications, and then uh, studied at Westminster University to get a higher national diploma in hotel management. And uh, a lot's happened since then. Well, Jay, uh, it is really brilliant to speak to you. I've been looking forward to to catching up over the podcast because I really think that uh, you've got a lot to share. So uh, what, what we do on the pod is we sort of talk about those influences in your early life um you know what what gave you that that desire to to join this industry something that's been part of your life for such a long time and then we'll talk about some of those experiences that you've had along the way but now as we say Jonathan to to for our housekeeping you are the managing director of the Red Carnation Hotel Collection a role that you've held for um a couple of decades now but we'll we'll get to that but uh, if we go back to those early days in your life, you are, I always thought you were a Londoner, but, but you can't be counted as a Londoner, can you? You were born northeast of the city, or is that up for debate? Well, yeah, I mean, my first uh, 18 years was spent in uh, in deepest, darkest Chelmsford out in Essex, where I went to school and very much enjoyed my time. But being the age I have now, Scotty, um, it's many, many years since I even went back there now, so uh Certainly, I've been in London and lived in London longer than I lived there as a child. So, yeah, I like to think myself as a Londoner, but wasn't actually born there. Well, let, let's go back to those early days and, you know, your, your schooling. You, were you a good student? Was that something that, that interested you? Yeah, I think I was a good student. I mean, I certainly wasn't an outstanding student. I wasn't top of the class when it came to academia. But uh, I always wanted to be on the good side of the class. And I used to work particularly hard a week before the parents' evening, before my parents came and listened to what the teachers had to say. That's when I really put a lot of work in. So I was good, like most people, I think, on subjects that I enjoyed. And and I used to enjoy the English side, the history side, um, less so the sciences. Um, But, yeah, I enjoyed school. And I was very active uh, on all the sporting fronts. and I've always enjoyed sport, so was fully involved in the, the football and, and the cricket teams. And rather farcically, really, I was also the, the rugby captain at the uh, school I went to. Not that I was the greatest player, but uh, perhaps I had the largest mouth. Perhaps I had the confidence. And uh, I, I always put my hand up to do almost everything on the sporting front. And that, that's what I got from school and probably in, enjoyed the most. And I think, you know, before I, before I finish on that, I think before I, I wanted to be a hotelier, 
I always wanted to be playing for my national side, England, and I always wanted to score the winning goal in a World Cup final. But as you get into your mid to late teens, you realise your limitations. So uh, that idea left my my head. Uh, But sport's important to me. And, I mean, sport is something that is often... um used by people in a business context and business people often use sporting analogies and what they do even going back to those early days you talk about leadership of of the rugby team or cricket football you know did did you feel that that you were a natural leader at that time yeah I think there was something in it that you know I like to give instruction I like to work extremely hard myself. It wasn't just a case of giving instruction. I was always the first one to arrive. I've always been very keen on timekeeping, always gave my best, um, always listened to instructions. And I think there were some skills that I learned as a, a younger person. When there was a penalty to be taken, I would never fear getting up to take a penalty. So, yeah, I had that self-confidence and determination, certainly from a young age, which I guess looking back, has had a bit of an influence on my, my work career as well. Uh, one of the things that I've always said about you, and I even alluded to in the introduction, is that you always seem to come across as, and, and I say this you know, partially respectfully because you're a good friend of mine, but uh, you know, as a cheeky chappy, you always seem to have a smile on your face. You always seem to have an energy. Is that something that you've you've always had? I find that, yeah, in management and friendship and all sports of life, I think one's got to have humility. I think one can't take oneself too seriously. We all make mistakes each and every day, and I think it's important to recognise that. Um, but I think you've also got to have some discipline. And I've been described by many people, and I kind of take this as a compliment, but I'm brutally competitive. Everything I ever do, I must be the winner. Uh, and my poor kids now who are through their teens, you know, never won anything because I had to win. And when I was a hotelier running a single unit, my hotel always had to be the very best. And I've kind of taken that on now to reincarnation, where, as you know, we're up to 20 hotels now. And those 20 hotels all have to be the best. And it keeps me awake if they're not. And I take things very personally. If we get constructive criticism, which I think we should have done better at, you know, it hurts, but it hurts in the right way. It hurts in that I really want to get it right and go back and do it. So when I have the humour and the fun, which I think is so important in life, um, it was never me misjudged for wanting to make sure things are done well. And there's an understanding we all make mistakes, but making them once is fine, but don't make them a second time. Yeah, that that piece around you know taking those responsibilities seriously, but not taking oneself seriously, is a is a fine balance. And I think you know at, at times we can we can get that right, we can get that wrong. But your your days you know, back in Chelmsford, which you know you've identified were were a long time ago, possibly a, a very different part of your life. Do you think that that upbringing, your family life, did it set you up for the success later on? Because the reason that I ask is we've spoken to a number of people who who will be on uh, podcast episodes and some of them, the environment that they were from, allowed them to thrive because they had that support, that nurturing. And respectfully, my word's not theirs. Some of them had an environment that they needed a motivation to, to get out from that environment. Now, what, what was your story that led you to, to start on the journey that you're on now? 
Yeah, I mean, I had a, a very good upbringing. I had parents that loved me. I was the oldest of uh, three children, three boys. So uh, I've got uh, one brother, actually, he worked for Red Carnation at some point, now lives in Australia. Uh, another brother that uh, stayed well out of hospitality. So I was the eldest of that. So I guess the eldest often takes a bit of responsibility. And something you don't know, Scott, because I don't really talk about it, but at the age of 18, I very sadly lost my mother through a brain tumour. So I suppose one has a huge wake-up call when you lose anybody, but your mother, arguably the most important person in the world at any time of your life, is 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 it's heart wrenching. So you know, eighteen, I was very much on my own, and uh, you know, I wanted to do a lot for her. You know, I don't want to make this uh, you know too tearful for myself, but I wanted to make sure that you know, if she were here today. She'd also be proud of what I'm doing because, you know, most people, if not everybody, loves their mother. So, you know, my childhood was very comfortable and very lovely up until sort of 16. She became sick, died when I was 18, and I was on my own. So I, was, I wasn't living at home as a 20-year-old, 25-year-old being closeted by a family still. I'd left. I was on my way and, and, and getting on with my career. And again, without wanting to, to delve in something that's obviously, you know, very personal to you, th- there's... I guess if I speak generally, and when somebody has to endure that personal difficulty or personal tragedy at that age of their life, and, and obviously you know, and there's, there's, of course, never a, a good time for, for that, but a particularly difficult time in terms of finding your, your own way in life, do you, do you think that taking that responsibility on through that adversity, because as we look at your career, which we'll speak about in a moment, you achieved a lot of those things in your career at an early age. Did it, for one of a of a much, you know, much better term? Did it? Did it? Was it the making of the man? I think at the time I didn't know this, but I think now looking back, for sure, I think it can go one of two ways. This you can either, you know, go into deep despair, give up in life almost, and do nothing for year after year. I took the opposite approach, which is kind of me, which was right. I'm going to make her proud. I'm going to do myself proud. I'm going to really get on with it. And I probably advanced me by a couple of years because we all lean on parents, mother, probably too much if the truth be low. Uh, but when they're not there, you're on your own. Aren't you? You've got to make it happen. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'd rather have her here today and, you know, not have the role I do, I suppose, because of what I've said. But what, you know, you've, you've got to do what you do. And, uh, you know, if I want to take a positive from it, yeah, I think it, it, it made me, you know, uh, a man quicker by what happened. So uh, beyond th- that time, you, you went to Westminster University, which you've spoken about in London, and embarked on a three-year um, higher national diploma in hotel management. We'll talk about what happened at the end of that time and what the results of that those were, but why? What, what was it that, you know, that, that why, why that course? Why, why that path? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. So I wasn't like many people really sure of exactly what I wanted to do uh, as an 18 year old. My my exams at school, they were they were good enough and I had various options. I'd uh, thought about going into journalism, sports journalism, again, my love of sports. But I had a couple of friends that were older than me that were in hospitality and I visited their hotels. I'd seen what they were doing. And I just liked it. I just kind of got under my skin. I wanted to know more about it. And uh, one of these guys had uh, been himself to Westminster and spoke very well about it. And 
it took on from there really my qualifications were good enough to be able to do this diploma and within a month or two of starting it I just knew at that moment I'd found the career that I wanted to do. My guest today is the managing director of the Red Carnation Hotel or Red Carnation Hotels, Jonathan Raggett. And, and JR, it really is brilliant to have some time with you today. We've heard about those formative years to get you to the point where uh, a career in, in hotel, or what do you say, in, in hotels as, as a hotelier? Hotelier, um, that's right. As a hotelier, gosh, that, that sounds very posh. Um, it suits you. But we're at a time in your life where you've qualified. What, what did you do? How did you embark on this career, first in the industry and, and second towards leadership? So after I completed my three-year diploma, which was fantastic, I enjoyed every moment of that. I had an opportunity to work in industry, and as the days went on, I just liked it more and more. Um, they were the days, I hasten to add, where um, it wasn't as good for our industry as it should have been. And certainly today, you couldn't get away with what I was going through. And good and bad. The, the bad being that as somebody who was embarking on a career and wanting to get to the top, I was doing some 15, 16, 17 hour days, uh, seven days a week, being paid for the eight hours, which was the contractive amount. And it was shambolic, really. I mean, I, I was enjoying it and I was so desperate to do well, I put up with it to do. Um, and I guess looking back on it, hasn't really hurt me at all. But it's not the sort of thing that's good for our industry. It certainly doesn't sit well still with many people that uh, in this hospitalities want to avoid because you know, people do too much. I really don't think that's the case today. And certainly those people working in Red Carnation get their time off. Anybody wanting to get to the top of anywhere has to do a bit more, has to work hard for sure. But it was, you know, it was too much in those days, really. But I, I went through it. I, I did what was needed. And I think one of the fantastic things about this industry, and I'm talking hospitality, I'm talking hotels, that if you have a very strong work ethic, um, if you care, if you're kind, it really is a fast track to get on within this business and for people perhaps looking at a career wanting to reach a management level I say that if you get stuck in you work hard you've got some of the attributes I've just mentioned by age, by the age of say 35 you can be a general manager of a hotel in a 10 15 20 million uh, pounds sterling revenue per year running a proper business and clearly that's a, a much younger age than it is for many other industries. I, I Before we talk about the your career, if you like, by date and experience, I want to just get you to explain that a little bit more because when you look, at, and we're not advocating for people not to have that balance in their life, none of those things, but I think it's an interesting point where almost what, what I took from that is if it's going to be, it's up to me. So sometimes those things that we, we do, hopefully that we choose to do rather than are imposed on us, they, they can be, rather than a negative, can be, if you like, an investment in ourselves. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, one thing about the industry that I'm in is that if you've got the right attitude, you can get the job done. You know, we're not doing open heart surgery. We're, we're not doing something that keeps people alive per se. We're doing it 
uh, with, with the generous hospitality uh, and a kindness to make these things happen. And clearly, that isn't everybody. Not everybody has those traits. But if you have and you're engaged and you take each customer in the way they want to be treated, you're on the way to understanding what this business is. And I think the more you do of it, and again, as we both said before, the harder you work, the luckier you are, um, it will go from there. So, you know, backtracking, if there's a 21-year-old now that comes out of Westminster with this qualification, they aren't expected to do 60, 70-hour weeks, but they are expected to work extremely hard and to care and perhaps do a few more hours. I'm just talking a few to make things happen. Because if you do that, you get spotted, you get recognised. And again, as I've said, you make progress. And I, I say at universities that I go and visit now, I just don't think if you want to get to the top in any ind industry, you can just switch the clock off. You've got to be doing a bit more. You've got to be adding more to it. Again, not going back to the ridiculous hours I was speaking about, but giving your best and doing more, I think is crucial to reach the top in, in any business. You know, we're going to talk about you joining Red Car Nation in, in a little while, but when you talk about those values, if you like, of application and hard work and you know, looking after the customer, those are philosophies that we would have heard a number of times from um, Mr. and Mrs. Tolman. You know, and did that make then your relationship with Red Carnation, um, obviously, with, with their influence, one that you were able to, uh, if there was alignment, can I say, that's allowed, that's uh, with a whole lot of other people, has that enabled you to achieve collectively the successes that you all have? Yeah, I think uh, it's a really good point, that, Scott. And having joined the company, as you mentioned, more than two decades ago now, when our first starting and still continue to work for our president and founder, Mrs. Tolman, I'd never, ever, ever met a person that was so detailed and focused towards the customer. And, you know, she arguably started something like CRM before it became an everyday word that people use. She'd know about customers coming back. She'd be keeping her handwritten notes about customers. She'd be wanting to know what each customer liked, what they disliked, to make sure on return stays she knew about it and she would write cards to them. I mean, an incredible lady. And certainly the views of Mrs. Tolman, of course, the great Mr. Tolman, absolutely aligned to, to where I was. And it was the first time I found a company that genuinely did what they said because I'd worked for many a larger company before and the business was all about maximizing every single bit of revenue stroke profit every year that was the only thing that mattered and whilst at Red Carnation clearly the business and making profit was very very important it was never ever going to be the, to the detriment of the brand and more importantly the mid to long-term future Sometimes you need to give out a little bit more to start with to get that loyalty, which brings more monies through there. And and what you're saying is that nobody I've ever worked for, the Tolman family, Mr. and Mrs. have understood that better. And I've learned so much from them. I thought I knew quite a bit beforehand, but I know a whole lot more today. But they, and this is respectfully about your leadership and, and where you take influence, but it would be 
remiss not to acknowledge obviously a significant part of, of the guidance that you were given and the, and the direction that you were shown. But you know, let, let's go back just a little bit to, you know, you, you, you've qualified, you're, you, you've gone into uh, this industry and so there's a gap there that are there things that you think are relevant in terms of your own development from that schooling, that education before your, your time at Red Carnation? And apologies with sort of toing and froing, but I just think, you know, you came into Red Carnation in a senior role, but you didn't just get that straight from your your education. So were there things that you you put in place, those experiences beyond obviously working very hard? Well, I've got a bit of a contradiction going on because when I've got now some of our brilliant people on our management program, I always say to them, look, you know, we'll develop you, we'll keep you, you stay with us and uh, you grow, grow that way with us. And many do. But I did the opposite. What I did is I spent about a year, 18 months with any company after I finished my HND. I was a real gypsy. So I, I went over the UK, I went to France, I went pre-meeting or even knowing the Tolmans, I worked in Africa, Southern Africa. I just went out there and I was like a leech. I was trying to suck all of the good stuff and learn everything I possibly could from great people. What you tend to find when you do that is you also learn a lot of the stuff you never want to do as a manager yourself too. So for like 12, 14 years it was actually, I hopped about. I, you know, people say, well, how can you do that for your CV? It didn't matter to me. If I wasn't learning, I needed to move on. So sometimes I stay a year, sometimes 18 months, never more than two years. And I've now got into a position where I've been in this company now for so long. Um, a, I got that out of my system and I felt I learned what I could. But again, I think it's kudos and great credit to the Tolman family, TTC, Red Carnation, that it is such a fantastic company to work for that has also uh, arrived at that. But one thing, and I think important for this conversation, is that if you go into hospitality, and you know this too, is one of the big advantages, one of the things you can take away from this is if you want to travel there can be another industry like it and it gives you so many opportunities to do that so um, I certainly did that and it's almost done full circle now because having gained the position I've got within reincarnation now I'm based in London which suits me great but I spend pre-pandemic I should say probably almost 100 days away from my own bed a year so I've got the whole mixture of the travel too. So we move forward to a time, you know, over 20 years ago, 23 years ago, so 1998 or thereabouts, you ended up having a conversation that changed your career path, that certainly changed the, uh, the duration or your tenure that you were in your current jobs as you or your previous jobs had you alluded to. So tell us about that meeting because you and I have shared this before and I think it's a really neat story of how you became um, someone in, in Red Carnation. Sure. Well, it's a story that I've dined out an awful lot and um, it changed my life in so many ways. But I was managing a resort property that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Tolman used to come and stay at and they were fantastic guests they took the best sweets they uh, spent great monies in our restaurants and i just enjoyed them as a couple they were great guests to have so i got to know mr and mrs tolman through their dozen or so stays they had uh, whilst i was at this property 
And um, Mr. Tolman asked the front desk at around 10 in the morning that he'd like to see me in his suite at seven o'clock that night. That was one of his stays. So um, I got the message and immediately, I think as any hotelier thought, crikey, what have we done wrong? What, what was the issue? Did he eat well last night? Is there a problem? So the maitre d' said, no, there's no problem. He had an exceptional meal and he left a very generous gratuity. No, he was very happy. So tick that box. The housekeeper, what, what's wrong with his room? No, nothing's wrong. So I, I panicked all day as to what it was because he was an important guest, a man that I'd enjoyed and did enjoy looking after. What, what role were you in at this time? I was the general manager. Were you managing the I, property? I was general manager of this property, yes. Yeah, so I was the, the GM of the property, right. that's right. So Sorry. I was the boss of this very, very nice resort property. So seven o'clock eventually arrived that day and five minutes before the hour, I went to the suite and I rang the bell and Mrs. Tolman answered the door and I went in and uh, there Mr. Tolman was and he was, as we know, a very domineering man, very smart and wanted to say what he wanted to say to me. So he asked me to take a seat in the suites and there I sat and I thought, oh, what have we done wrong? Must have, must have screwed up somewhere. To which he said to me, Jonathan, I said, yes, Mr. Tolman. He said, uh, my wife and I, we like this hotel. And he said, I think I like you. <laughs> so I said, oh, thank you, Mr. Toll. Well, I have to say, I like you and Mr. Mrs. Toll very much. But he said, well, I want to tell you, he said, um, I'm going to be buying some hotels. And I've just bought the Rubens Hotel in London. And I need a manager there. So I'd like to offer you the job. And I was very happy where I was. And, you know, there was all kinds of emotions going through me. Excitement, fear. I didn't know quite what to say. So he asked me if I got any questions, to which I said I hadn't really. And then he told me that if I did a decent job at the Rubens, he'd build a hotel on top called 41. He'd then go back to South Africa and buy some hotels there. He was going to buy a hotel in Geneva. He was going to buy hotels in Ireland. He kind of plotted the next 20 years in his mind as to what he knew he and Mrs. Tolman were going to be doing. And the carrot and stick was that I was going to be part of that journey as long as I didn't screw up. <laughs> so I left the room. I was very, very confused. And then a chap called Mick Hollands I'd come across in Guernsey. He called me and he said, look, Jonathan, I joined this company. Um, I know you've seen Mr. Tolman. I've got to tell you, it's the best company you'd ever join. So I said, thank you, Mick, and didn't think that much more. And I spoke to a few of my friends and I said, what do you think about me leaving this hotel I'm at and joining Red Carnation? They said, you're nuts, Jonathan. You're very happy where you are. What do you want to leave where you are? I said, I don't know. I was, I was mid-30s at the time and I just always had ambition and always wanted to see what more I could do. So I learned more about you know, the role, a bit more about the role, because Recarnation was nothing to where it is today. And, and with respect, the Rubens was nowhere near the hotel I was managing at the time. Anyway, sort of fast-tracking, I, I took the role and um, I ended up my first day at the Rubens Hotel. And I think I'll just put this in now, Scotty, because... I think it's a good story and I'm sure you'll have fun uh, asking me more questions later on it. But I arrived on my first day and there was a, an acting general manager, um, a not unattractive lady, I might add. So I met her and um, I gave sort of 20 minutes of 
Jonathan lecture that I'd been brought into this hotel. Things were going to change. We were going to do this, that and the other. And I just, I was a mid-30s, a bit bombastic, I might say, about how things were going to be done. So she listened very patiently. And then from within her her jacket gave me her notice, which had been pre-written and said, well, thank you for that message. But, uh, you know, you didn't really need to give it because I'm going. I went, oh, oh. <laughs> I thought, thanks for that. Um, so we had a month's handover, her and I. And again, fast tracking this bit too for these listeners going through this. 12 months later, Scotty, I married that lady. <laughs> and oh, it was 12 months. And then a year after that, we uh, had our first child. So we're, we're like 23, four years married now, two children. So the Tolmans, A, gave me this opportunity to run what I think is one of the finest set of hotels in the world and give me one of the most amazing, wonderful uh, ladies I could ever have found too. So it was uh, quite good. And Mrs. Tolman often teases me about, you know, Jonathan, it's not just the job. We found your wife too, which they did. Yeah, that's lovely. What a lovely story to share. That If I move on beyond you know, your, your story, if you like, I mentioned when I introduced you, and I mean this sincerely, you, you always seem to have, I don't know if casual is the right word, but this, this warmth and, and fun. And I, I, the first time I saw you talking to a member of, of your team, and, and I, the, the person with the greatest respect wasn't in, in a leadership role, but they, you know, obviously they were doing a great job. And you were having banter with them. And I thought... The risk sometimes when you have banter, certainly in the old way of leadership, is that somebody might not know that the next time you're not wanting to have so much fun, you've got something's happened and you've got a point to make. So how do you balance that? Because, as I said, you know, I've, I've always found you to, to have that, that, that humour, but at the same time the standards that you expect are so exacting and... Is that getting the right person to start with who can understand those differences? What is that? Sure. Well, I think if I look back and someone says to me, what have been your successes at Reincarnation? The, there's an easy answer to that. And that is the longevity of the team that work with me. So if you look at the general managers we have now in this company, um, some of them, I mean, Andrew Pike, who runs the Milestone, he's 22 years. Malcolm Hendry, the Rubens, he's 20 years. Dirk, who's at the Montague's, 18 years. Um, Adam, who's the manager of the Chesterfield Hotel in London, was the linen porter at the Rubens when I arrived there. He's now general manager of training development. Now he does a great job there. Liz McGiven, who's my PNC uh, manager, again, absolutely outstanding with people. She's now worked with me for 18 years. Um, my commercial manager who'd worked for Sabre for, she was a bit like me in my younger days, never stayed more than a year or two. When she came for the interview, said, I'll probably only do a couple of years because I'm a, you know, she's been with you 12 years now. So I have this knack of, I believe, giving this fun, giving this humor, um, which I think is important because I think it's, you know, you've got to have that in any business, but letting everyone know exactly what I want to. And I think if I can just bring this in now on the pod, please, Scotty, because I think it's one of my successes as a manager, is that I'm, as night follows day, I give every one of my direct reports, a twelve every 12 weeks, a one-to-one. -one. 
And that one-to-one is where we step out of the business and we talk about what you want over these next 12 weeks, what you're going to achieve, and as importantly, what I want you to achieve. So this isn't just about doing the job that you are paid to do. These are objectives that I expect to be done, but we agree them and we can disagree because that's how it works. We come to a conclusion about what we're going to do. Once those 12 weeks are complete, we come back together, we review what we said we were going to do, we see what we've done. I do expect an executive to be saying to me five, six weeks out, look, Jonathan, I'm not going to succeed. I'm struggling with this, which can be fine or not, depending on what it is. But we have that platform. So there's no surprises. They don't in 12 weeks time say, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I wasn't sure you wanted that. I think it's so important in leadership and management that you give clear instructions as to what you expect. And the people I was talking about just now and their longevity, when they, they're asked, you know, you've worked with Jonathan now for so many years, would say, only because I've heard this now quite a few times, is that he's fair. Um, if you haven't done something, you're going to know about it, but he gives you every chance to do it. And he tells you what he wants. He's clear about what he wants. And he'll move things to make things happen. But we all know what we've got to do. And I think so many leaders change their minds too frequently. You don't know where you are. There's an inconsistency to it. I fight tooth and nail to give these guys what they need what they need. I'll give them every bit of support. They know that 24-7 I'm available for them because, again, I see them as work colleagues, but also as my greatest mates in some cases because we're doing this job together. But it's not a mate where we're going to go and have a, a few jars together and get drunk. I never do any of that. And when we go out as a team, I'm always the first to leave. I'm always the first out. I'll say thank you to them and I, and I get the hell out of there. Um, because you know, there's a fine line as, as to where you want to be. But I think clear direction, putting your arm around a person, understanding that person. I think, you know, I know the names of all the partners of my management team. I know whether they got dogs, cats, I know their children. I know their birthdays uh, of the children too. I mean, again, I'm coming from my mind, like I diarise it. I care enough to do it. And I think, you know, they know I care about it. And one or two clearly have, have left the company since I've been here and moved to do what they want. But keeping that team, understanding that culture is what makes Red Carnation. It's those people. And I think it's that leadership style that I've done has definitely worked because these people I'm talking about are simply amazing. They're some of the very best in the business. I want to ask a couple of questions that come from that because I, I find that really intriguing. Somebody that's listening to this may have aspirations to go into leadership they may not have yet had that opportunity and so when we are that they may be listening to you if you like rather than um, sharing their requirements on somebody else if I can put it that way should we be if a leader who sets that expectation who obviously collaborates as well, and, and you have that discussion, but when we're receiving instruction or direction, are we better to hear that in a, in a clear and direct way? Obviously, you know, of, of course that goes with the respect and the way that the message is delivered. But I, I feel sometimes for modern leaders now, for fear of offending, getting it wrong, upsetting, I think we sometimes do a disservice to somebody when clear communication, clear 
instruction for want of a better term delivered in the appropriate manner is actually a really healthy positive thing for people to learn and develop themselves yeah and i think I never want to do the fear management. I don't want people too scared to give me their opinions. I think that's a dreadful way to manage. And that's kind of where I get the, the these 12 weeks I keep talking about here. The opportunity, for it's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. They tell me what they feel. Now, obviously, I have the last word on this because I have the responsibility for it. And, you know, I want to be questioned on some of the things. I don't want to be questioned on things that I know we have to do as a company. Um, so it's important every manager doesn't just argue everything and not want to do everything because we're not going to get on in any corporate world like that but i'll yeah the managers i again spoke about earlier i want them to have opinions i want them to have innovation i want them to have that excitement because that actually keeps me excited too i want a bit of risk i want a bit of risk but obviously we've got to understand where the business is too so you know i will give a bit more out and the great thing scott is that when you've worked with these guys so long you know they understand the business you know they care about their business they're not going to have any wacky idea that's going to destroy the business but you've got to if you want to keep great people you've got to give a bit of rope to them as well and that understanding is important so yeah i think if you want to a manager has to listen to his people but the the people, the employees too, also need to understand what has to be done, has to be done. And, and that takes a bit of time to be recognised. And I think, again, it's a respect both ways is needed for that to be understood. Um, and, you know, but I think it's a sad place in any workplace, I think, if you just each day do as you're told. I think you have to be given opportunities to be able to give your ideas too. And I very much welcome that. If I talk about a slightly different you know, part of, of the business. One thing that is really important within the, the travel corporation, but in society in general, is making sure that lots of voices from lots of backgrounds and life experiences are, are heard. And that has both a, a strategic a requirement, strategic benefit that a business has chosen to undertake that for you know reasons that are as varied as commercial to the right thing to do and then also there's an organic diversity within a team and that's fostered why why is diversity so important within red carnation and within your leadership as well sure there's a lot of very very obvious answers to that um in that you know we're clearly a much better company um, to embrace diversity throughout the way that one person wants it. it's never going to be right you need to bring the strengths of people through and again as you know scott the travel corporation and that includes very much reincarnation really do embrace um all cultures um in fact we work hard to make sure that we give everybody an opportunity to have that voice, to feel part of the team. And we haven't got there yet, but there's some horrendous recruitment issues going on in Europe right now. And you know, one thing we are finding right now is because we have that diversity, because we, we welcome it so much, actually, we are getting some real successes and wins from people wanting to bring other people into our company because they think it's fair, it's equal. And we can always be better at it. I mean, I wish I had 
more female general managers in our company than we do today. Um, we only have two as we stand at the moment, but I, I would like to have more. But where I am proud is when it comes to my sort of senior executives and, and the assistant managers, deputy managers, we have a lot, again, a, a great mixture of, of people running those roles. And, you know, I can look in the mirror and say that I always want the very best person to have that job, you know, whoever that may be, um, you know, at all. So, again, to, to make sure we are embracing the, the whole diversity throughout our business. My guest today is is Jonathan Raggett. And, Jonathan, in the short time we've got left, I'd like to, to move beyond your, your, your life in travel to your travel life. You know, we're drawn to this industry. You've mentioned this as we've spoken today, that it's given you great opportunity to see different parts of the world, to understand different cultures and places and peoples, which is a phenomenal gift that uh, we should all be very grateful for, particularly given the last couple of years have made that far more challenging. But let's talk about your your travel life. You know, do you have an experience that is your a, a defining moment for you in travel? Um, well, I think I'm always going to sort of feel Africa is a bit of a defining moment in that I did a full circle in that I was working out here before I joined Red Carnation TTC, and I kind of come back now on a fairly regular place. I do absolutely love the country i love the people um i love the beauty of the country so for me um it is a place i enjoy spending but again as i mentioned earlier i do really enjoy the worlds of hotels and feel very blessed that the red carnation hotels uh, are global and get opportunities to go and visit and i don't think it's so much the hotels anymore that i really enjoy seeing it's the revisiting and seeing the people that are in those hotels. People that have worked for Red Carnation for 10, 20, 30 years, and you're going back and you're seeing them and they're proud of the jobs they're doing and they like talking to you. And I know it's a bit cliche, but it really does feel as though it becomes one big family uh, when you go back and, and you see people and you feel you can do a little bit that supports them and help their life. So me and travel, I think is, I love the traveling side of it, but it's the people that I enjoy seeing most in in the different global regions that we have red carnation hotels and i guess that leads on to a fairly uh, self-explanatory next question but what what has travel what has travel taught you well, i think just very just quickly because where we are in this world right now february 2022 is that travel as we know can't necessarily just be taken for granted like it always was and that uh, it's actually now a privilege and you know, I think people need to wake up and really understand that much more so. And I do think actually going forward and hospitality, we're going to be super busy because I think there's going to be more people wanting to travel than ever to make sure they don't miss out and, and chances of this happening again. So um, for travel, and I've completely lost actually Scott what I was supposed to be saying. I just wanted to get that bit in first. What was the thought? What, was what, what travel taught you? Oh, well, travel's taught me that you become very insular if you stay in your own place and you're just around the same people and you do the same thing every day. Whilst you know, 
a lot of people do that and they're fine with it. I just think it broadens your mind. Uh, you, you you see so many different things. You can be yourself. You can learn from people. I love the idea of learning something each and every day. So it's it's about getting out there and it's it's about seeing these cultures, different people, and you know just trying to give back and and support and help and uh, get the most from it. And you know we're all on this land, aren't we, for a limited number of years? And uh, you've got to get out there and do your very best. So yeah, that's that, that's where I see travel. And you know, my last question about your your travel life is you know, where where to next and then that doesn't have to be in a literal sense but where, where's on the the bucket list that place that you you've got to get to well i've got to get to new zealand to see you scotty i've never been in new zealand so that's that's very high up and as you know that was on my ttc there my bucket list to get out so i've, I've never been to your great country so i'd like to do that um, I don't know, there are so many places that I still haven't been to in this world. So I'm now at a stage where I'm officially an empty nester. So my, my kids have left home, they're at university. So my wife and I hopefully will have an opportunity to do even more traveling now they're through their education. And I'd like to see Far East. I'd like to spend much more time out there. I'd like to spend time in India. Um, there's, there's still so much I'd like to see. The, the bucket list for me starts now. And uh, I don't know how many years you've got, so you've got to get going. I would just, if I can, I know it's not a question, I'll make my own question up on your pod if I can. But I've also got to a stage in life as well where I want to ensure that I'm giving back. This career has been so good for me, Scott. I mean, I'm, you know, towards my late 50s now. And I just want to say to people out there that if you're not sure what you want to do and you've got the right credentials for hospitality, if you can have a life I've had within the hotel world, you won't regret it. There's not one bit I regret about coming into this business. I've enjoyed just about every second of it. Yes, it's not always peaches and cream. I've had some pretty you know, lousy days at times, but the good has far outweighed the bad. And you know, I want to spread that message. I want to really encourage people to come into hospitality. The idea of doing the same job each and every day, being in the same location, just doing it and longing for a Friday afternoon. I just can't think how desperately sad that was. I don't have Monday morning blues. I just enjoy what I do. And I'm starting to get people now that say to me, Jonathan, when are you going to retire? I'm not thinking about retiring. I, I love what I do. I don't think I'll ever retire. I'm just happy. I'm content. And as long as I'm giving my best, as long as I'm making a difference, as long as I'm seeing red carnation now, top of the tree, and we're making some monies as a business, I'm seeing people develop. I couldn't be happier. That's, that's, that's what I'm doing. And on a personal note, and I'm just going to, you'll shut me up after this. Um, I want to just sort of remain fit, remain healthy. So sport, as I said, as a school kid was very important. I've set myself a challenge for this year, Scott. I'm going to be doing something which is well and truly out of my comfort zone. And I like being out of my comfort zone. I think you've probably picked this up from the pod. don't like doing the same thing. So in June, I, with 25 riders will be riding the entire Tour de France route. We're doing the exact same route one week before the professionals. And what I'm really chuffed about is us as 25 riders will be making more than one million pounds sterling for cure leukemia. That's what we're doing. And I am the oldest rider. I'm not proud about that. But I tell you what, there is nothing nothing going to stop me getting up those mountains and making sure I can complete those 21 days. I think that's a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing to do, and uh, 
And what a wonderful gift to be able to to help support. And so that that's a neat, neat way to finish. The fact that you've already completed nine marathons in your life, you are unashamedly one of the most competitive people that I know. Uh, you're, you're a great friend. I'm incredibly grateful to you for having some time with you today um, and for you sharing your thoughts as very much a a leader in travel who's been prepared to go beyond the business card. So, JR, thank you very, very much for having the time with us today. Scott, an absolute pleasure. And I can't wait to see you again very soon. Yeah, I hope so. Folks, I really hope that you've enjoyed that time with Jonathan. I'm sure that you have. If there's a leader that you think others would benefit from hearing from, please email me, scott.cleaver at ttc.com, as we'd love to have... uh, as many of our leaders, both emerging and current as we can. Thanks very much.